Good morning, Lakeview Church. Uh, so good to be with you. So good to be in the presence of the Lord this morning, just worshiping Him with you. So thank you for being here. Thanks for making this a priority. I know that there are some of you here in the room, this is your very first time, and for some of you in the room, it's like your thousandth time here. And whether you're here for the very first time or that thousandth time or somewhere in between, we're so glad you're here. And we just want to let you know that we are so happy that we get this opportunity to be in this place together worshiping God. We have some people who are gathering with us online as I do every Sunday. I just want to look right in the camera and just say a special welcome to you. We are so glad that you're here with us. And whether you're watching this service right now live in this moment or on demand at a later time, we're glad that you're here. And I know that everybody here in the room wants to welcome you. So can we just say a warm welcome to those who are joining us online today? 2023, our theme verse is Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, and it's this verse that Jesus taught in the Sermon on the Mount where he says to his disciples, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be given to you as well. And we've set this as our theme verse for the year, and for 2023, we've said our whole intention and desire for every day, every week, every month of 2023 is that we would put God first. We'd put him first in our day by giving him a part of our day to be in the word and to be in prayer. We'd give him the first part of our week by prioritizing gathering together like this in a worship service. We said that we would prioritize them in our finances and in our work environments and in our classrooms, and we would prioritize them in everything that we are and in everything that we do. And during the month of February, we're looking at what it means for us to put God first in our relationships. And we kicked off this series, which we're calling God Honoring Relationships, last Sunday. And we really laid the theological foundation for this series by going back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and really looking at the creation account and, and really trying to discover when God created the world and when God created human beings, when God created relationships, what did he have in mind? What was his plan? What was his intention? What was his purpose? This morning, we're going to build on last week's message by talking about marriage. And I want to just say a word to those of you who are not married, because this message will feel like it doesn't apply to you. But, but I want to let you know that later in this series, we're actually going to spend some time talking about the importance of the call that God places on some of our lives to be single. And that it is not the, the teaching of God's word and it's not been the teaching of God's church down through the ages that marriage is the only way to be faithful to God. Some of us are actually called and invited by God into a life of celibate singleness and that singleness and the married life both can be an image of God in this world as we are faithful to whatever God has called us into. I know that sometimes in the history of the church, those who are not married feel that their call to singleness makes them somehow a second-class citizen, and I just want to let you know that that is not true in this church, that we believe that people who are single can faithfully image the nature and the character of God in this world, and they can serve God in ways that married people cannot, and the scriptures teach that. And that we as th those of us who are married can also image God faithfully in this world as we live out our covenant of marriage faithfully before God and before the world around us. And so it is not if you are single, we hope that you get saved by getting married. 
You need to hear me say that. Because some of you wear this like a burden and I just want to let you know that sometimes God invites people into singleness and your call in that kind of life is to be absolutely faithful to him and to represent him well in this world. And so I want to encourage you with that today. But this morning's message is focused on the covenant of marriage. And we're going to talk about God's design for marriage and the ultimate purpose for marriage. And to to look at this topic this morning, we're actually going to look at the teaching of Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew. The book of Matthew is the first book of the New Testament. And in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is approached by some Pharisees and he's asked a question And it's really not a question about marriage per se, it's actually a question about divorce. And Jesus takes this opportunity when he's asked about divorce to talk about God's design for marriage. So I want to read these verses for us, the first nine verses of Matthew chapter 19, and then we're going to unpack it together. This is what it says. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and he entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan and large crowds followed him and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and they tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another woman, commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. As we think about this passage of scripture, it's important to recognize that the Pharisees are coming to Jesus not out of a pure curiosity or because they have this sincere desire in their heart to discover truth. They are coming to Jesus with sinister intentions. They're coming to test him. They, they're trying to catch him in his words. They, they want him to say something wrong something that they can kind of latch onto and they can get him. That's why they're coming to him. And I, I just, I love Jesus for so many reasons. But one of the reasons I love Jesus is because he always knows what to say. Do you ever get in a situation where someone asks you a question and you answer and then like you get home and you're like, man, I should have said that. That would have been the right answer. Jesus never has that experience. He says the right answer every time. The Pharisees come to Jesus and they're testing him and they're testing him by going back to the Old Testament law. And there's a law actually written in Deuteronomy chapter 24 and and that's the law that they're referencing. It's a law about divorce. And, And so they go back to this law and they're asking Jesus this specific question. 
Can a man divorce his wife for any cause? Now, it's interesting that the Pharisees know the law inside and out. That's their job. Like this is what they do with their lives. They study the law. They, they know the law. They exegete the law. They explain the law. So they, they have these discussions all of the time. But it's fascinating when they ask Jesus this question, they're kind of misquoting the law. Again, because they're trying to catch him in saying something that is not correct. And so I want to take you back to Deuteronomy 24 so that you can actually read the law that they're referencing. This is what it says. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from his house, and if, after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Or if he dies, and here's the actual law, then her first husband who divorced her is not allowed to marry her again after she's been defiled. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Do not bring sin upon the land of the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So it's interesting to note in Deuteronomy 24 that, first of all, divorce is never commanded. Right? It just says, if, if in fact you do this, if, if you've written a certificate of divorce because the husband found something indecent in his wife, and there's been lots of debate about what this means, right? Is this, is this immorality? Is it adultery? Is it just, she's just not nice? I mean, we don't know. There's been a lot of debate. Even in Jesus' day, the different rabbinical schools would argue about what the word indecent means. And they would go back and forth about this to try to get to the reason that you could send your wife away with a certificate of divorce. They were looking for ways to get rid of marriage. Commitment that they had made to send their spouse away with a certificate of divorce. And, and this was an argument that they made. And, and as fascinating as it would be this morning to spend the rest of this message talking about what are the, the biblical reasons in the law of God for divorce and what does the word indecent mean in Deuteronomy 24, I think that would be a waste of our time. Because when Jesus was asked a question about this law, he doesn't answer the question that's being asked. He goes all the way back to the beginning of the world, the creation account, and he returns to God's original design for marriage. And so what I want to do in the remainder of our time is simply look at how Jesus answered this question. I'm going to stick with him on this question. What did Jesus say when he was asked, what is the law telling us? And Jesus responds to the Pharisees by saying, have you not read? Have you not read how it is stated in the creation account that God made them male and female? And therefore, for this reason... A man should leave his father and mother and he should cleave to his wife and the two should become one flesh. 
And what God has put together, let not man separate. Notice how Jesus doesn't go back to the law and try to exegete what the different words mean. He doesn't even point out that the Pharisees have misquoted the law. He doesn't spend any time on that. He just goes back to the beginning, which is why we started this series where we started it last week. Because it's really, really important for us to understand what God's original purpose, plan, and intention for relationships is when he created the world before sin entered. And so we're going to just spend some time this morning unpacking what Jesus has said about marriage in Matthew chapter 19. And I'm going to give you four truths about marriage. Four truths about marriage from Jesus' words in Matthew 19 and from Genesis chapter 2. The first truth that I think is really important for us to understand is that marriage is binary. For those of you who don't know what that term means, it means that when God created human beings, he created them male and female. And marriage is designed for those two entities. This is the way God created marriage. I know there's a lot of confusion in our world about male and female and man and woman, and I just want to let you know God is not confused. God is not confused. When God created human beings, he created them male and female. And right after he created male and female, he instituted the covenant of marriage for one biological male and one biological female to come together in this covenant relationship. This is the way God created it. We see it in Matthew chapter 19 when Jesus is answering the question about divorce. He goes back to the creation account and says, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? You cannot overlook this fact that when God was creating human beings, he created male and female as the perfect complement to one another. This is what God intended for men and women, male and female, to be in this world, the perfect complement for each other. And we see this in Genesis chapter 2. We talked about it last week, right? Because Adam has been given charge over all of creation. And one of the ways that he begins to live out that charge is he's naming all of the animals, which must have just been a fascinating experience, right? I mean, just all the animals, the birds of the air, they're all coming before him. And Adam is given the task of naming them. And I don't know how he knew all those Latin names. He, he names all of the animals, and, and while he's doing that, he recognizes, and God recognizes with him that no suitable helper could be found for him. 
He was alone. And God says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 18, it is not good for man to be alone. And Adam goes through all of the naming process of all of these other things that God has created. And in chapter 2, verse 20, it says no suitable helper could be found for Adam. Now, it's fascinating when you dig into the Hebrew word for suitable. This idea of what a suitable helper means. It's actually a compound Hebrew term, and the, the term is konegdo. You're not going to be tested on that, and you don't need to know it. I'm just going to tell you what the word means. The, the first two letters of this word, the K-E, means as or like. And the second part of this word, the word neged, means opposite to or against. When you put these two words together, Timothy Tennant in his book, For the Body, says it means something like as opposite him or like against him. What does this mean? Adam has now been given a helper in the woman who is like him. She's a human being, and there's a lot of similarities. But she's not an exact copy of him. She's got some differences. And as Adam looks at this gift from God to him, because remember, it was God who said, it's not good for man to be alone. God creates this woman for Adam. And when he does this, Adam sees her and he actually says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. What's he saying? She's an awful lot like me. But then Adam says she will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. He recognizes that while she's an awful lot like him, there are clear differences between him and her. And what Adam recognizes is that Adam and Eve, the, the man and the woman, they do not stand side by side as exact copies of each other. They actually stand face to face as opposite each other, as different from each other, even though they are very much the same. There is this similar difference about them. And the way God created them is so that they could literally fit together. This is not a mistake. This is not some evolutionary accident. This is the God who created all of the earth, creating human beings in his image, male and female. He creates them to be like and similar to each other, but to be different from one another so that they complement each other in every way. And after he creates them, he creates marriage. Marriage itself is created by God, which brings me to the second important reality about marriage. Not only is marriage binary between these similar and different people, but it is a one flesh union. It is a one flesh union. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 19, verses five through six. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. 
And so they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. This is exactly the words of God in Genesis chapter two. He creates the woman, brings her to the man, and, and Adam says, this is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. She'll be called woman for she was taken out of man. And right after that, God says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Now, this statement that God's making about what marriage is suggests that when, when two people get married, they leave the family unit that they originated from. You can still like know them and like them and hang out with them, but you leave them because marriage is so important. It actually requires you at some level to cut ties with the previous relationship that you have known up to that point in your life so that you prioritize a new relationship, the one that God is giving you with your spouse. And so it's, again, it's great for you to have if God blesses you with in-laws that you can get along with and love and hang out with. Praise the Lord. But they should not be up in your business. You have to actually leave them behind. And parents, if your kids are married or getting married, you cannot be up in their business. You have to let them leave you because they have a new priority and it is the most important priority of relationship they will have on this earth, the spouse that God has given them. And so we leave our family unit of origin and we, we cleave to our spouse and, and we develop this new relationship and we prioritize this relationship and, and this one flesh idea is, is about all of that. It's about emotional connectedness. It's about exclusivity. You don't get to bring other people into this marriage relationship. It's one man and one woman for a lifetime until death separates you. That's the way God designed it. And there is no place for a third person or multiple people. And, and this sounds like do we really have to say that in our world? Yes, we really have to say that. Just recently on the today.com website, they posted an article. In fact, it was just at the end of January where they talked about two married couples who decided to date each other. And now they've decided to live together as a family unit and share partners and raise children together when they don't know who the fathers are of those children. So when we talk about one man and one woman for a lifetime, do we need to say that? Yes, we need to say that. Because that's what God had in mind at the beginning. And we can talk about prioritization and exclusivity and emotional connectedness and all of those things. And, and the one flesh union connects to all of that. But I'm going to tell you right now, when God was talking about one flesh, he was talking about sex. That's what God was talking about. And for some of you, you are so uncomfortable right now. 
And there might be many reasons for that. Some of you are uncomfortable because for you, sex is such a private, personal matter that to ever say it in public like this is really uncomfortable for you. And I'm just gonna ask you to just take a deep breath. It's gonna be okay, I promise. Some of you are uncomfortable because you've equated sex as a bad word. You think it's ugly, dirty, nasty. You think it's a problem. And part of that is all of because of what the world has done to pervert something that God created for a man and a woman to experience in the context of marriage. And so you've taken this word sex and you've equated it with something that's, that's dirty or wrong or bad because of what you see in the world, this promiscuity, this perversion, this pursuit of pleasure and selfishness and lust. And you think to yourself, there's no way sex can be good. But here's the thing. It is time for the church to redeem sex. I bet you didn't think you're going to hear that on Sunday morning. But it is time for the church to redeem sex because sex was created by our God. And it's not meant to be perverted and it's not meant to be used for promiscuity or for the pursuit of lustful pleasure. Sex is created by God as something to be beautiful, something to be enjoyed, something that's sacred, something that's holy. Because it takes two people who are similar and yet different and it brings them together in a one flesh union that God himself created back at the very beginning of humanity. We have to redeem sex in our day as something good and beautiful and sacred and holy. And this is really important for us in our day because our world is distorting sex and making it something that's selfish and lustful and, and just something about your own promiscuity and your own pleasure and you just going out and getting whatever it is you want. And that is not what God created sex for. Beth Felker Jones says it this way. She says, sex is God's good creation and one of God's good gifts to us as his beloved children. It's not nasty or dirty or a problem. Sex is something that we can receive with delight, with gratitude to the one whose good creation it is. Sex, then, when it is experienced in the way that God intended it to be experienced, honors God. It is part of a God-honoring marriage. But here's the thing. If we're going to use sex in a way that honors God, if we're going to engage in sex in a way that honors God, we must do it in the way that God intends for us to experience it. And there is no other context where sex is intended to be experienced. No other context outside of a marriage between one man and one woman who have made a covenant to each other for a lifetime. 
It's one of the things we get wrong in the church because we single out one group of people and say that their sexual sin is worse than anyone else's. But I'm here to tell you that if you're having sex before you're married or you're having extramarital sex outside of your marriage covenant, if you're bringing in additional partners to your marriage or you're having same-sex attraction experiences, I'm telling you right now, all of it, every bit of it, if it's outside of one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage for a lifetime, it is sin. It is not right. It is not the way God intended for it to be experienced. And the only way to honor God with our sexual lives is to save sex for the context of marriage. And if you happen to be one of those people called to celibate singleness, then your responsibility is to be celibate. It's not just a call to be single and then do whatever you want sexually. No, it is a call of God to celibate singleness because that's how we honor God in that context. I know that this is a fun message series, isn't it? I know that these are not comfortable conversations for us to have, but we must have them in our day. We must have them in our day. Because if we do not, the church will simply buy the ethics of the world. And we will assume that we can give our hearts to Jesus and do whatever we want to do with our bodies. And that is not the Christian faith as taught in the New Testament. We must honor God with our bodies and we must honor God with our relationships. And that's why we're having these conversations. The third thing that I'll say about marriage is that marriage is procreative. And we talked about this last week. It, it, it is intended to be a relationship where new human lives are formed. God created us for this. And, and I know that there are some of you who have carried the burden of infertility. I know that. Some of you have even talked to me just since last Sunday to say, what about this, Pastor? And, and I wish I could tell you, I've got all the answers. But there are some things in our world that I don't think there are answers for. Part of the problem is that God created the world with a perfect plan and purpose and intention in mind. But when we get to Genesis chapter 3 and humanity rebels against God, this world gets broken. The image of God, the plan of God, the purpose of God gets marred and things aren't the way God wants them to be. And some of you have carried the burden of the curse of sin on our world. It's not necessarily your individual sin that made you experience that. It's just the sin that is on our world. And I wish I could tell you that if you just do this, it would be lifted off of your life and you would be able to have children. And you want me to say that. And I wish I could. I don't understand why God doesn't work miracles in some people's lives to let them have children. I don't understand. I don't have answers. But I just know that even in that hard place, God is with you. God is with you. 
And you might not always feel like that, and you might actually feel that your lack of ability to have children means that God has forsaken you. And I just wanna tell you, that is not true. God is with you. God is with you. And if you will just turn to him and be faithful to him, even in bearing the burden that has been placed upon your life by the curse of sin, God will be honored. And you might not have the child you want, but you can give him worship and praise and glory, even when life doesn't go the way you want it to go. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. But God is with you. So rest in him today. Rest in him. And all of that said, and all of that is 100% true. The reality is, is that in God's original intention for humanity, he created male and female. He put them together in the one flesh union of marriage. And out of that covenant of marriage, God's intention was that we would be fruitful, that we would multiply, that we would join him in producing life that would fill this earth. We talked about this last week. And we talked about Genesis chapter one, verse 28. God blessed them and he said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Listen, this is God's intention. And no matter how we change definitions in our world and move boundaries around, the reality remains. If you wanna make a human life, that process is absolutely 100% dependent upon heterosexuality. It is dependent upon the way God created it to work. Which says something about God. God knows what he is doing. He knows the plans and the purposes and intentions that he has. And we can do whatever we want to do to blur those lines and move away from his plan and his purpose. But his purpose still endures. Our world might think God is irrelevant, but God has created this world so that he will never be irrelevant. He's in every part of it because it's his world and he made it work that way. Last thing I'll say about marriage is that it is covenantal. Matthew 19, verses five through six, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. It's really, really important for you to understand that marriage, as God intends it, is not something that he gave to you for selfish reasons. He didn't give, he didn't give marriage to humanity so that you can make a contract with another person to get your own needs met. This is part of the problem in our culture with marriage. We've, we've approached marriage as a way that, that it's about me. But marriage is not intended to be that way. God invites us into the covenant of marriage so that we enter into this covenant and we give ourselves to our partner. In fact, in the New Testament, Paul talks about the fact that your body is not your own if you're married. You've given yourself to your partner and your partner has given themselves to you and that's the way marriage is intended to work. It is a covenant of self-giving love. But in our culture today, we've made marriage 
for those who are still holding on to marriage. For some people, marriage is no longer a category. They've just dissected it as one attorney says who defends people in non-traditional family arrangements. Her statement is that the good news of our culture is that we've finally broken marriage into its component parts so you can experience whichever parts you prefer to experience without the baggage of the other parts. That's what's happening in our culture. And when we do that, we've made marriage into a commodity. Tim Keller, in his book, The Meaning of Marriage, says this. He says, today we stay connected to people only as long as they are meeting our particular needs at an acceptable cost to us. When we cease to make a profit, that is, when the relationship appears to require more love and more affirmation from us than we are getting back in return, then we cut our losses and we drop the relationship. He says this is known as commodification of marriage, a process by which social relationships are reduced to economic exchange relationships. And he says, for this reason, the very idea of a covenant is disappearing in our culture. See, if we want to have God-honoring relationships, we have to come back to this idea of covenant. That when we go into marriage, we are saying, I am going to give myself to my partner without the idea of what I'm going to get in return. That I'm actually going to give myself to my partner fully. And that it's not about exchange. We're not keeping score. We don't have tally sheets to make sure it's even at the end of the day. No, we're just there to serve and to selflessly love. And to honor our partner and to lift our partner up. Paul, the the first century church leader, writes a letter to some Christians in the city of Ephesus. And in the middle of his letter, he's got a little paragraph to husbands and wives. And he talks about marriage in this way of being a self-giving covenant. This is what he says. He says that, that people who are getting married are called to submit themselves to one another. They're called to love one another fully. And he even goes on to say that we are to give ourselves to one another. This is what marriage is intended to be. And by the way, Paul goes back right after he talks about that to Genesis. It all goes back to the beginning. What's God's plan from the beginning? One man, one woman. Similar but different in a covenantal relationship that brings them together as one flesh. And in that context of that covenant, they would give themselves to each other out of self-giving love for a lifetime until death separates them. This is God's plan. But why does the Bible say this? I mean, up to this point, I've given you what the scriptures say, but so we know what the design for marriage is. But why did God create marriage in the first place? I mean, it's one thing to know what he wants from marriage. 
But why does he want that? Why create it to begin with? Couldn't God have come up with another way to fill the earth? Why did he create it? And what is its ultimate purpose? I'm so glad you asked. God created marriage because it is a signpost that points to the unity that is experienced between Christ and his church. Marriage as sacred and holy and beautiful as it is is not just something to be experienced for its own merits. God had a purpose for this relationship beyond beyond love, beyond unity, beyond sex, beyond creating children, beyond all of those things that we've talked about this morning. Marriage has a higher purpose than all of that. And that higher purpose is to be a signpost that when people see a God-honoring marriage, they point themselves to God. This is why God created marriage in the first place, and this is why marriage must be protected and defended. It is why we must honor our marriage covenants. It's why we must work to have marriages that are healthy and strong and vibrant. Because when we have God-honoring marriages, it says something to our world about the God that we serve and his desire to live in union with his people. And you might not believe me that this is true, but but I'm telling you, it's through the whole Bible. In Genesis, we see God creating marriage at the very beginning. Before anything else happens, he creates human beings. And the first thing he does is he creates marriage. And by the time we get to the Old Testament prophets, they're talking about Israel as the bride of God. And Solomon writes his songs that we read about and in those songs he celebrates the marriage covenant and the one flesh union that men and women experience in that context. And by the time we get to the gospels, we read Jesus telling us that marriage was created in the beginning to be this way. And we read Paul when he's writing to the church in Ephesus and he's saying, you ought to submit to one another, husbands and wives out of reverence for Christ and you ought to love one another just the way Christ has loved his church and you ought to give yourselves to one another just as Christ has given himself up for the church. And then he goes back and he quotes Genesis, right? For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul forgets what he's talking about. He forgets he's talking to husbands and wives and he slips over and he says, but now I'm talking about a greater mystery. I'm talking about Christ and his church. Marriage always points to something beyond itself, which is why it has to be protected and defended. And in case you wonder if this is where it's all headed, by the time you get to Revelation 19, we're told that we're going to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And we're told in Revelation 21 that the church is dressed beautifully like a bride waiting for her groom. 
Marriage is a signpost and a husband and wife in this covenant of love are intended to be icons and images of God and the union that God wants to have with his church in this world. So how we define marriage matters. And how we live out our marriage covenant, it matters. And the way we protect and defend marriage, it matters. Timothy Tennant talks about this in his book, For the Body. And this is what he says, marriage between one man and one woman must be protected because the man and the woman united together stand as icons representing Christ's unity with his church, the bride of Christ. He continues on, adultery, fornication, and gay marriage all erode one of the key markers of marriage, the exclusive, unitive sign of our union with Christ as the people of God. Alternative arrangements, though endorsed by the culture, cannot be embraced by the church. They cannot be embraced by the church since they serve as an anti-sacrament a visible sign of our rebellion against God's design. Again, I know these are not comfortable conversations, but as your pastor, I'm gonna teach the truth. And I'm gonna help you understand not just what we believe, but why we believe it. We believe marriage is between one man one woman for a lifetime in a covenant of self-giving love. And we're gonna protect that and defend that and stand for that until Jesus comes back. Now, I know that there are people in this room who are married. I know for sure that there are people in this room who are engaged to be married. My son's one of them. His fiance's in Zambia right now for a semester abroad, so pray for him. He's, he's hanging out at our house a lot more these days, so we're, we're happy about it. So, but he's getting married in June, and I know there are others of you who are engaged to be married, and, and, and I, I wanna just take the privilege this morning, if I can, to pray for all of our married couples and all of those who are engaged to be married. And, and I, before we get to this, I, I wanna just again just say, if you're not married, This is in no way saying these people are better than you. I want to be really clear about that. I want to be really clear because some of you are are not married and you want to be married someday and and we're going to pray that God will direct you to that person that he has in mind for you if if that's his plan for your life. But if God's plan for you is to be single for the rest of your life, that God would give you the grace to enter into that calling. In fact, in Matthew 19, Jesus actually talks about it at the end of this passage. Verse 10, the disciple said to him, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples are figuring this out in their head, but he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. He says, there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this, receive it. 
Jesus doesn't diminish you as a single person. And we're not gonna do that either. I just wanna make that really, really clear. And so some of you are single because you're yet to be married. Some of you are single because you're divorced or your spouse died. And, and all of those are legitimate reasons. And you can be faithful to God in whatever stage of life you're in right now. And I wanna encourage you to do that. But I wanna pray for those who are married or are engaged to be married that God would bless those unions with his presence and his power and his strength. So if you're married or you are engaged to be married, I wanna invite you to stand and we're gonna pray for you. So stand up right where you're at if you're married or you're engaged to be married. Can we just pray together, church? God, right now in this service, we just want to pray for every couple represented here. God, I'm asking you to bless each one with a fresh, fresh anointing of your spirit. Fill their lives and their relationships and their homes with your presence. Let Christ be the center of who they are and all they do. God, I pray for every marriage represented in this room right now and those who are joining us online. I pray that you would protect them from ungodly influence in this world and from all of the attacks of the enemy who wants to erode our commitment to the covenant of marriage and destroy marriages, homes, and families across our community and throughout our world. I ask God right now in this moment that you would make every marriage represented in this room better. Make it better in the weeks and months and years ahead than it has ever been before. Protect them and bless them and anoint them, I pray. And God, in a room with this many people in it, there are marriages among us today that are struggling. Bring healing and restoration where partners have sinned against you and against each other, pour out your grace and your forgiveness and keep each marriage represented in this room pure and holy before you. Increase each person's love and commitment to their partner like never before. And most importantly, God, I pray that you would let every marriage in this room those that are currently married, those that are engaged to be married, let every marriage fulfill its ultimate purpose by representing you well in this world and let every marriage serve as an excellent signpost pointing to the unity that exists between Christ and his church. And as we honor you in our marriage relationships, may you be glorified. And we pray these things in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everyone who agreed said, amen. Can we all stand together this morning? I know that this has been a heavy message. And I hope that, uh, I hope that's okay. I want you to leave this place knowing that God has called us to have God-honoring relationships and we are putting God first here at Lakeview Church in our lives. And, and I just, I hope and pray that we will lean in 
to who God is and what God wants from us. And even when that's hard to do, I pray that we'll do that. So as you go from this place, my prayer of blessing for you today is that God would bless you and that God would keep you. I pray that you would sense the Lord making his face shine upon you and that God would give you his peace as you go from this place. You are sent out.